Say, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Guys, it's nice to be in the room today. It is. Uh, guys, I'm a little tired, I gotta say. What I've happened been, to you? I've been wrangling all week with, a, with a, a, a Catholic church in southern New Jersey. What does that mean? So, I've been selected to be a godfather. Oh. Uh, and unbeknownst to me... You have to get some sort of documentation that you're like, uh, like in in good standing with some kind of church. Oh, having I, I, I was ha- raised Lutheran. I don't know crap I about this. I haven't been to church. I mean, I, I guess I'm <laughs> ethnically Catholic, but I haven't been to church in in since the Clinton administration. So, so like, you're gonna have to like dig around to get this. Uh, oh, I've proof? been digging. I've been, so you call you call the and like no. No one answers the phone that's listed. Like it, it's like one building was already sold to Are someone else. Are they dodging else. your calls, like, Bill? Are they just dodging your maybe? calls? Maybe. Who knows? But it's guys. It it hasn't been. It hasn't been easy. Well, the Catholic Church hasn't ha- hasn't exactly had a good relationship with journalists over the last. No, 10 and they years. don't that's want. A fair point. And they don't want like a thirty year old guy calling them and saying they need to have paperwork about their time at the church <laughs> as a child. <laughs> um, you know. So, so that's what's going on with you. <laughs> that's what's going on in my world. Um. So uh, I think we got a cool show. What are we talking about today? Well, we're going to talk about a few things, but one. Uh, Big conversation we're going to have is our main guest, John Hill, this week. And he's going to talk about the Supreme Court weighing in on if just forwarding something that your boss has written that's a misstatement can put you on the hook for securities fraud. They're criminalizing reply all emails. Finally. (laughs) Finally, we're taking up the big issues. I mean, watch out, guys. Whatever I send you, watch what you forward is what we're going to talk (laughs) about. And we're also going to circle around at the end of the show. And I'm actually going to bring up sports. I want to talk. About, I, I know flabbergasted, well, new right? Day. <laughs> well, only because it's Scottie Pippen, and I actually know who that sports figure is, yeah. and he's got a bit of a saga going on about his Florida mansion being trashed, and there's some legal action around it. So it'll be a fun one. Sounds to talk like about. Mad Libs. Cool. Scottie Pippen. This is a mansion I mean, in Florida. It also includes I mean, wh- an attorney turned comedian. Well, yeah, it's got it all. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> we have another legal Mad Libs kind of story that we've all become uh, a little bit inured to over the last uh, you know, several months. It's the Trump-Stormy Daniels affair, and there were some exciting developments there. Right, Bill? Yeah, we're back on the uh, the whole Trump-Stormy thing. Yeah. Um, you know, there was plenty of other uh, whole, the whole Trump world sort of developments in the last week, but this was yeah. a, a fun one to sort of zoom in on. Um, Attorneys for President Trump were in court seeking um, like nearly $800,000 in uh, attorney's fees and penalties from Stormy Daniels over a failed defamation suit she filed against the president. So it's sort of a it's a weird situation to see this, you know, billionaire head of the executive branch seeking these kind of penalties against someone who sued him. Yeah. Well, I mean. We usually like I personally like check out at stories about attorneys fees. That's like something we write about a lot, but it's not exactly the sexiest thing. There are exceptions to the rule, though, and I think this qualifies. Yeah. So just to rewind a little bit, um, this is separate from it should be said from Stormy Daniels sort of more successful litigation involving um, it w- the, the non-disclosure agreement that she signed with Michael Cohen. Uh, the payments to, she received. Yeah, yeah to stay mm-hmm. quiet about her 2006 one-night stand affair with Trump. Um, she also filed this defamation lawsuit against Trump. Um, so it starts back in March when the whole Stormy Daniels situation was starting to become public. And um, she... In a TV interview, she described being approached in a parking garage by this unknown man who 
threatened her and told her to stay quiet about the whole Trump situation. And like her her, her daughter was with her at the time. Yeah, yeah. It was like the it was like the most dramatic po- point of the interview. Yes. Yeah. And she released this sketch of the guy who apparently allegedly uh, uh, threatened her. And Trump, as Trump often does, uh, responded to this in a tweet. Quote, a sketch years later about a non-existent man, a total con job, playing the fake news media for fools, but they know it, exclamation point. And multiple capital letters in that. Yeah, there's weird caps, but that sort of goes without saying at this point. So do another segment on the Trump tweet style guide later (laughs) on. But Uh, Stormy and her lawyer Michael uh, Avenatti, who we all know very well at this point, um, they quickly filed a lawsuit for defamation, claiming that Trump's tweet, you know, that this guy was non-existent and that she had made it up, was false and defamatory. But we're now talking about uh, Trump seeking attorney's fees, so they obviously lost their suit, right? They did, and. it's interesting because, you know, in the big scheme of things, Stormy Daniels has been fairly successful in, in you know, she was subject to this agreement and, uh, you know, she sort of successfully fought against it and yeah. everything else. But so in October, we saw a very different situation. A federal judge um, ruled on this um, this defamation case that she filed and said that um, that Trump's tweet. Uh, it was merely the kind of opinion that is protected by the First Amendment. It wasn't a statement of, you know, provable fact that he had said about her. It was just this sort of hyperbolic rhetoric. The, qu- the quote, the court agrees with Mr. Trump's argument because the tweet in question constitutes rhetorical hyperbole normally associated with politics and public discourse in the United States. The First Amendment protects this type of rhetorical statement. It's an interesting sort of commentary on the uh, well, yeah, current, I mean, current it's, political situation. It's pretty but. funny that a court of law is on record as saying Trump's tweets are a normal part of political discourse, <laughs> but that's we'll leave that for for another time. Yeah, um, that brings us to the fee issue. So she lost, um, and now he's seeking fees against. Like, what's what's the story here? Yeah, it's sort of a weird situation that's rooted in the way that Trump sought to dismiss this lawsuit. So there are these things called. Um, anti-slap statutes where um, it's a type of state law that's been adopted by many different states, sort of different iterations of it, um, that it's designed to prevent someone from filing this, you know, like a a more powerful person from suing you to keep you quiet. Right. So it's designed to prevent people like lawsuits that are purely being used to to impinge upon the exercise of free speech. Um, Most of the time, the way that that works out is someone sues you for defamation and you file this anti-slap motion to quickly dismiss the lawsuit. And most of these rules not only allow for you to, they allow for you to quickly dismiss these kind of cases. Um, So that's what Trump used to dismiss Stormy Daniels' case. And So there is some weirdness here then, because you don't really expect like, the president to be the one doing exactly i think if you talk to you know the policymakers or the legislators who you know envisioned anti-slap statutes they would have viewed it as a a little sort of um uh, individual fighting against a big powerful organization that was trying to silence them so they wrote in these provisions into the law that say if you win one of these things if you beat one of these big scary organizations that are trying to silence you not only does it dismiss their lawsuit, but if you win, they have to pay your legal fees. So it's again, right. it's another way to sort of empower a person to fight against the lawsuit that was filed for, um, you know, reasons that that maybe were adverse to the First Amendment. What we have here is a very, very different fact pattern than that. It's it's you know, a, it's the like I said, it's the the head of the executive branch who also happens to be a billionaire. Yeah. Um, 
using this provision to go after a critic who I think it should be mentioned, the whole like to do here was started because she said that she was being silenced by someone else. Right. So yeah. it's just, it's, it's a very, very um, uh, different sort of situation than you would normally see under this kind of, kind of rule. Yeah. So now that we have this sort of the big picture of what's going on, what were the nitty gritty things that happened this week? Right. So she, so, so Trump won uh, this anti-slap motion and it entitles him to his attorney's fees. So his attorney, Charles Harder, who um, you probably uh, many people, their ears perked up. It's the guy who filed the Gawker the lawsuit, Gawker and mm-hmm. he's a very prominent um, plaintiff's defamation attorney. Yeah. Um, uh, he was in court on Monday, and he asked a California federal judge for $390,000 in legal fees. He then also asked for an equal amount in sanctions, saying that oh, wow. um, that like the you know that we need this as a deterrent against <laughs> the frivolous lawsuits yeah, like this. Yeah. The judge pushed back a little bit, you know, questioned some of the methodology of how he arrived at those figures. Um, But Harder said, you know, it's a one of a kind lawsuit. The president was sued. We have to marshal different types of resources and everything else. So Avenatti was there, too. And he called all the legal heavyweights in one courtroom. (laughs) Yeah. Avenatti, who this week said that he was not running for president in 2020. And I think you announced cool. the same, didn't yeah. you, Bill? You're not I did either. say that I, I similarly I am not running for president. I think we should all go on Destroying record. hopes everywhere. Yeah. Amber, have you, do you have any interest in running for president in 2020, or do you want to... You know, guys, Let's get you on the record right now. I, I like to keep my options open. <laughs> oh, classic. If I, if I do announce, it will be on the Pro Se podcast, but later, Great. In 2019. I'll <laughs> Great. let you know. Nice. Avenatti, uh, yeah. Avenatti called the attorney's fees request uh, staggering and grossly inflated. And he called the. He said that they should they should be capped at like twenty five thousand dollars, so yeah. a lot less. And he said the the sanctions, obviously, on top of that, he said that they were absurd and, and outrageous. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. always a guy for uh, measured language. Yeah. Um, so the ruling on this, the judge took it under advisement, and we'll issue a ruling later. But so we'll see how much Stormy Daniels. And you know, it was obviously a legal misstep misstep to to file this this lawsuit against Trump. We'll see how much in the coming weeks, how much it costs Stormy Daniels. Well, thanks for that one, Bill. Uh, this next one is kind of an interesting little grab bag of a lot of different topics we talk about here a lot. We've got a uh, story about arbitration, which comes up a lot. Great. We've got uh, lack of diversity in the legal realm, which we talk Sadly, about a lot. Yeah. Sadly. Also, rappers uh, coming in and out of the legal system for we various talk about reasons. That a lot too. Ta- talk about that a lot. Terrific. Uh, interesting case, uh, interesting decision out of uh, New York State Court this week. Jay Z, the rapper Jay Z, never heard of him, scored uh, a really interesting win. Um, when, uh, again, a New York state judge basically, uh, stopped, uh, uh, his, his dispute with a clothing brand, a clothing company called Iconics, um, after, uh, Jay-Z's legal team complained about, uh, a lack of black arbitrators to hear his dispute with this company. It was wow. interesting stuff. Yeah. I, I like that Jay-Z is bringing some firepower to a potentially thorny issue here but Definitely. let's get into sort of what exactly they were fighting about yeah um so and actually bill you can kind of check me on the notes here because it did because it did begin as an ip uh licensing dispute but yeah. basically jay-z has been in this licensing fight with this brand iconics for many years iconics a few years back um bought jay-z's rock aware mm-hmm. brand mm-hmm. and uh they have then various fights have cropped up about the use of the logos and marks involved in that brand. Uh, some of those have settled, um, but the a, a bunch of them have now gone forward into arbitration. So they're out of court and into arbitration for this. And that is 
Um, nor normally at this part of the game, we kind of forget about these cases. Like it, it goes yeah, into a fancy conference room and they come out and some things have been resolved and right. they haven't been resolved. They're fresh either. out the frying pan and into the fire. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, so uh, a funny thing happened when they went into the into the fire. Uh, although that's uh, that's a I'm, I'm mixing a Kanye West lyric there now. Damn it. I was going <laughs> to I was going to like that's a whole thing. Um, but uh, when the time came for each side to pick arbitrators to hear this dispute, Jay-Z's team came back to court and said, we have a problem here because we uh, there's a list of like hundreds of arbitrate potential arbitrators that the American Arbitration Association keeps on file. Uh, and they have said, we can't find a single arbitrator on this list who is African-American. Wow. Uh, and we have a problem with that. Uh, it, it, it suggests a certain uh, embedded bias in hearing a case like this or hearing a dispute like this. Um, and that was what they went back to the court with. Uh, the AAA, the, again, the American Arbitration Association, came back and actually said, you're a little mistaken. Again, out of these hundreds of names, there are three black people <laughs> who can hear the case. One of them happened to be conflicted out because that person had represented Iconics in earlier <laughs> litigation. So you have two now to pick from here. Um, and they had a problem with that. They, 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 uh, they went back to the court and they said, it would stand to reason that prospective litigants, which undoubtedly include minority-owned and operated businesses, expect there to be the possibility that the person who stands in the shoes of both the judge and jury reflects the diverse population. Seems to be a reasonable argument for them. Uh, and yeah, so they, again, they went back into court and said this and said, this is a serious problem and uh, we need an injunction to stop this whole thing while we address it. And we got a ruling really quickly, right? Yeah, the judge came back like hours later yeah. um, and uh, basically said, yes, uh, granted the injunction uh, to Jay-Z, um, which, I mean, let's, let's not undersell that. That in and of itself is fairly remarkable, if only because, like we've already alluded to here, the general deference that federal courts just give to the entire arbitration process. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's got to be something really went off uh, for her to, like, say something's yeah. wrong. I now I, the court, am now intervening in this uh, to stop it. So the uh, the injunction is through uh, December 11th. Uh, that's the next court hearing. And the general idea here is that Jay-Z's lawyers are going to be in touch with the American Arbitration Association to sort of... <laughs> you know, diversify the roster a little bit uh, and, you know, see what they can arrive at. Um, Iconics. I, I feel like we're doing a commercial for what, like, Legal Zoom or like one of those hiring things where it's like, if you're an African-American arbitrator, please sign up now. You could get your big break on Jay-Z's sure. case. It's true. Um, and uh, Iconics's opposition to this led to an interesting um, uh, exchange with the judge in court. Uh, the, the state judge that was hearing this is named Sally Ann Scarpola. Um, and while she was handing down this decision, basically, the lawyer for Iconics said, it would be unusual and defeating to allow one party to work with the AAA uh, to add new members to the population for the purpose of trying to, and then the judge intercedes, quickly cuts off the attorney and says, to be more diverse? <laughs> How can you oppose that? How can you possibly oppose that? <laughs> so a, the writing was on the wall, I think. That was uh, a fun moment for him in court. Yeah. Um, so like I say, the TRO, uh, it, or the, 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 the temporary injunction, rather, is in place now. It's, I mean, this is a really interesting one, right? Because we do talk about arbitration on this show a lot, but we usually are talking about it uh, in more general terms, about it sort of pushing things into this quiet place where it's not publicized. We often talk about it with like 
employment-related matters. This is a whole different problem in arbitration. Right. It's weird to come up with a new, not to come up with, but to to find a new gripe against arbitration because <laughs> there are so many and right. people raise them so often. You know, the idea that it deprives people of uh, the, the class action route, that, sure. it, that it silences whistleblowers and people who have been abused, you know, yeah. all sorts of other reasons why we've talked about why people don't like these things. Certainly. And this is not an instance of a plaintiff being uh, at a, at a pow- on, the, on the wrong end of a power imbalance. This is Jay-Z, of sure. course. Um, but, but that power from Jay-Z is probably the exact reason we're talking about this, because it got the attention of media, because Jay-Z is the one saying it. And also other... Um, people in this situation may not have felt that they could push back in the same way yeah. that he did. And his lawyers took a big, t- t- you know, spun it in a very, you know, sort of potentially historic way. We'll see what comes out of this. But the idea that there could then be, I mean, the the American Arbitration Association sort of has its own internal oversight procedures. But the idea that someone could cast an eye toward the hundreds of people who, poten- who, who decide cases like this... Um, and now have an opportunity to sort of make that make that population more diverse. Very very interesting development to be sure. Can you be held liable for fraud if you simply forward your boss's misstatements to clients? That's a question that landed at the Supreme Court this week in a securities fraud suit. To talk about the case, we're joined by reporter John Hill, who covered the oral arguments. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks very much. So this is a case about alleged securities fraud. What does the SEC say happened here? So you've got this guy. His name is Frank Lorenzo. He's the head of investment banking at this broker dealer uh, called Charles Vista. It's Somewhat shady, a little bit of a boiler, boiler room kind of place where you've got lots of high-pressure sales tactics going on. That's at least what the SEC says. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this guy, Frank Lorenzo, again, he's got this one client, and it's this energy technology company with not really good finances. They're trying to do a debt offering to basically save themselves from failure, $15 million of debt securities they're trying to put out there. And, you know, Frank, what he does is he ends up, one day he sits down and he sends out these two emails to potential investors. Inside these emails, he includes what they call basically deal points, which are trying to outline what the offering is about, trying to pitch investors on it. And in there, you know, really what he says is not important. Essentially, what the SEC says is that three of the things that he said in there were not true. Mm -hmm. And not only were they not true, he knew they were not true when he sent those emails out. So this is what we know is fraud. Exactly. You would think that. (laughs) But in this case, Lorenzo says, hey, I didn't write this. I actually got it from my boss. He wrote it in an email to me. Right. I just copy pasted it, slapped it into the email, and sent it out. So this is Bill and Alex's worst fear that I'm going to write something terrible (laughs) and have them send it along. Okay. So I mean, is there? Do we have? You know, has the Supreme Court said anything about like you know, you know who? Who is making a statement when it when it comes to to fraud? I mean, is there is there any sort of guidance here on on you know what the court has said in the past? Yes, there is actually. So in 2011, the Supreme Court has this case. Short name of it is Janus, and basically what it says is that the maker of a statement, the person who can be held liable for having made that statement, is the person who has the ultimate authority over the statement. Mm-hmm. So in this case, you couldn't go after say a speechwriter who writes a speech for a CEO. Because the CEO is the one who not only commissioned the speech, but then delivered it. So he's the guy who actually has the full control over the statement, not the speechwriter. Right. Okay. And I mean, you can see this playing out in a number of ways. It's like, Your Honor, the email said 
if I don't forward it, I'm going to have seven years of bad luck. What was I supposed <laughs> to do? Uh, so, yeah, no, no, it's an interesting thing. I mean, the idea of, like, especially in, like, a competitive, like, you know, you just kind of do what you're told in finance and stuff. I was like, my, my boss said, like, told me to send this stuff, and now I sent it Well, out. I'm sure there's a lot of associates out there who think about it in the law. Sure, firm. yeah. No, but see, that, that's where it gets interesting because this guy is not just some, you know, junior flunky. He's actually okay. the, the head of investment banking for this this firm. Mm. Important so to note, yeah. He's, he, you know, he, he signs it as vice president. He signs it as himself, and he says, hey, guys, if you have any questions, contact me. Okay. So he invites him to do it. He signs it in his own name. He does mention in there something like, I'm sending this on behalf of my boss. Okay. But, you know, and, and what the SEC says, and you can sort of see it, is that well? This guy is endorsing it. He's taking credit. You know, he, he is putting his name on it in a way that then makes him the maker of the statement. Okay. Well, so Janice, uh, which is the the controlling precedent here, basically says, you know, if you are the maker of the statement, if you have authority over it, um, that kind of sounds like if he's really just passing along stuff that his boss told him to say, that he, you you can see a universe where he's off the hook. But how did the how did the lower court? rule on that with re- with regard to Janet. Right. Well, so this started off as an SEC administrative case. So, you know, right. at the SEC level, they said, yeah, you did this. And uh, you made the statement. They My found man, him... you did this. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they found him liable for a number of different kinds of securities law, anti-fraud provisions, things. And, you know, the specifics there are not quite so important. But at the circuit level, uh, what they said is that one of those, which is the one, the provision of the law that basically says you cannot make fraudulent statements, uh, they said he didn't actually violate that one because of Janice. You know, his boss was the maker of the statement. Okay. So Lorenzo like, didn't make the statement, so he's not liable for that. However, he still got a problem because they found him liable under these other two provisions of the same law, which hmm. is called scheme liability. Okay. And that's, that's Talk to us about that. Yeah, that's basically the situation where, you know, rather than just being uh, someone who makes a fraudulent statement, what you're doing is you are engaging in some other kind of conduct that you know, perpetuates the scheme in some way. So there's, you know, the, the, the language is something like, you know, you, you can't employ a device or a fraudulent kind of, you know, very technical kind of sounding stuff, but the important part is basically you participated in the fraud, so you can still be held liable for the fraud. Okay. So basically hitting forward means that you perpetuated that fraud. You're part of the scheme now, even if you just forwarded the statement. Right. That's what, that's what the SEC would say in this case. So what is um, Lorenzo arguing back? Because that pretty much neatly lays out what the SEC and the government's saying. But what's Lorenzo say that would potentially keep him off the hook here? So his point is that, well, look, if Janice says, I didn't make the statement, and all I did was hit forward, you know, I copy-pasted, whatever, I did something very minor, without more, you can't really hold me liable. Because basically what you've done then is you have taken the same claim that would have been barred by Janice and just slapped a different name on it. You brought it under a slightly different clause and you can't do that because that not only undermines Janice, but then it creates this situation where you've basically said he's an aid and aiding and abetting this this fraud. Mm-hmm. And that's important because there's basically another kind of Supreme Court precedent that says you can't do that if you are a private party. You can't sue and bring an aiding and abetting clause against someone. Right, yeah. Because then that basically expands liability to a much broader scale. Yeah, you're, of you're casting a huge wide net there. Right. Yeah. And so that, that in, ends up, through the SEC's argument, would expose many more people to potential liability. Okay. So... We saw oral arguments this week, and and you covered them for us. What what did it sound like? The you know what did it seem like the the justices took away from this? What were some of the highlights? So Kagan was very focused on you know the issue of, look, what you did 
sounds like what the law prohibits. Mm-hmm. You know, how explain to me why this is not conduct, why this is not uh, you know uh, participating in the scheme, if you sent the sent the message. So she was very focused on that, and you know, some of the other justices were also quizzing uh, Lorenzo's attorney on this, and particularly uh, Justice Alito, who interestingly in the Jan's decision he was on the side. Uh, in the majority in that particular case, but basically he was for the position of limiting liability, whereas here, you know, he seemed maybe a little more skeptical of Lorenzo's oh, position. And before I continue, I should note that Kavanaugh participated at the circuit court level in that decision. He was dissented, so basically he sided with Lorenzo, so he's not participating in oh. this particular case at the Supreme Court level. So we might see a 4-4 on yes, this. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And that's why it's interesting that Alito maybe seemed a little bit skeptical because Alito, again, was on the opposite side at the Janus case. So does this now present the possibility of, you know, 5-3, something like that? You right. know, we, don't, we don't know yet. Now, another kind of interesting point here is that Gorsuch, uh, in this case, seemed to be leaning more toward Lorenzo's side. And that, you know, one of the things that he seemed to be skeptical about was what is this difference here between sending an email and making a statement? Sort of yeah. like, where is the fraud coming from? Is the fraud coming from the act of sending the email? Yeah, the the, the clicking or right. the pasting or the or saying. is or, yeah. it the fact that is the fraud coming from the basically the text in the email that somehow creates the misleading impression in the victim's mind? And, you know, he got into some Latin terminology there, as you, might, you know, <laughs> no way. would expect with him. But, uh, you know, the, the distinction there that he's trying to draw makes, you know, becomes very important in the context of, you know, is he primarily liable for this? Is he secondarily liable for this? Sure. And that's the difficulty that he's, he was having in the oral arguments with the SEC side in particular, trying to, you know, suss out what is this distinction and can you tell me why I should treat these the same way, basically, why you should be able to bring this as a separately kind of different kind of claim here. And did any of the justices get into what you mentioned earlier, that this was a fairly senior level person? Did they seem to care much about that? They did get a little bit into the factual basis. I mean, Ginsburg, I think, was interested in that, you know, trying to, she was interested in the circumstances of how the email was generated in the first place, trying to figure out, you know, was this, was this copy pasted? How exactly uh, did this message come to be and then get sent out? Um, And I think that the, you know, important part of, Kagan's argument was that, yes, this guy knows what he was doing right. and, you know, you don't seem to be, excuse me, Lorenzo's side didn't seem to be contesting the knowledge, yeah. you know, the, the knowing um, sending of the emails. So he knew that the information contained in them was not true. And so her point is like, look, if you do this and you have sent out this email, then at that point, why aren't you able to be accused of perpetuating the scheme. We talked a little bit before about the idea that, that you know, that this scheme liability was sort of an end run around this earlier Janus, this Janus ruling. I mean, did the justices get into that at all? This, uh, you know, the argument that that they've left something of, untouched. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. 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 Well, they did get into that. And, you know, one of the, the defenses that the SEC says is, look, you know, he was so involved in this. He was not just you know, the janitor cleaning up the place. You know, <laughs> right. He was he was actually actively doing this. And yeah. he, he knew and he was in a position to be able to do this. So the, sort of the level of involvement in this case is what distinguishes it from, you know, an, uh, an aiding and abetting case or something like that, mm-hmm. where in that, in that sense, it's not going to be a worry if they were to side with the SEC because those other cases are very different. You know, they're much more tangential actors. He is not. Right. So uh, it seems on the face of it that if they side against Lorenzo, it could open up liability for a lot of people. Is that true or is there some more narrow thing they could do here? Well, they could certainly limit it to the facts of this case. I mean, that's sort of the right. the, the odd way this is presented, you know, a copy-paste situation. That right. does present an avenue for the justices to come in and try to very narrowly tailor their ruling to, you know, 
find him liable, but you know, not create some sort of broader rule that undoes Janus or you know, the different kinds of Supreme Court precedents that are caught up in this. Um, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why securities lawyers have been watching this is because it does present that possibility of, you know, much, you know, a broader sense of liability. And particularly, you know, the argument that, well, you've created a backdoor aiding and abetting claim that right. could be very useful to plaintiffs right. lawyers. So that's why a lot of these people have been very closely watching this case. And, you know, that was actually one of the points that the SEC attorney made. Uh, Gorsuch was getting him really hard there. And one of the things that the guy fires back is, look, if you rule against us, We've lost this guy. There's no way we can hold him accountable. And he did stuff that we all agree is bad. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you, you, let, you let him off the hook completely. And, you know, Gorsuch said something to the effect of, well, we have bigger fish to fry here. This is not oh, just wow. about this one case. Wow. Yeah. This is about, you know, drawing a much you know, more important line than just whether or not this guy did something wrong. So, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting case to watch for that reason. And I'm sure many people are trying to figure out exactly where this 4-4 bunch might come down to. All right, everybody, watch what you cut and paste from emails and forward along. (laughs) Thanks for explaining the case to us, John. Thanks for having me. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And fellas, as I said at the start of the show... I actually want to bring up a sports star. Sing it. I know. Um, I'm really proud of myself. So, Scottie Pippen's who I want to talk about. and Please, allow me. At forward, out of central Arkansas, 6'7", Scottie Pippen. Sorry, nice. go ahead. Nice. Uh, so, I would not be, I, I would be betraying my, my Chicago brethren. Yeah, that feels, that feels right. All right. So, he has sued a South Florida attorney turned comedian mm-hmm. and her husband mm-hmm. for oh, okay. <laughs> allegedly trashing his $10 million mansion, stealing cutlery, uh, letting their pets urinate all over the property, basically just destroying the place. I like, I just love that in this story, like one of the key facts, it's like, trash the mansion. Like destroyed things, stole cutlery. Like it's just, it's just in there very casually. Like stole knives. Like yeah, we, we're gonna get into a little bit about what they did. But first, let me tell you a little. Yeah, bit about I don't the even house. know where to. I don't even know where to begin. Yeah, I mean, okay, tell us about the yeah, property. So, uh, as you would imagine, for a sports star, it's a huge place. It's six bedrooms. It's thirteen thousand five hundred square feet. It's in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So it's pretty fancy. Wonder Florida big, man. I wonder um, how big Jordan's house is. Uh, well, which one is then? Then then becomes the question. This but is yes. one. Of Scotty Pippen's multiple houses as yeah. well. Um, so, a criminal defense attorney named Lindsay Glazer and her husband started renting this place for about $30,000 a month. And it had a pretty stringent rental agreement. It stipulated that they keep the place in like tip top shape because Pippen was trying to sell it at the time. Mm-hmm. So, he wanted to like show people while they were renting it. And they also were required to get $1 million in an insurance policy for this valuable place. Okay. They didn't get that insurance policy according to the the complaint Pippin filed and they damaged a ton of stuff. Now, what um what, what, hang on, let's back up. What who who are these people? Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, it's a fair question because there's just not a lot of people in the world that can afford a 30k a month lease, well, right? It's, a, it's That's, another thing yeah. you casually mentioned you were like attorney turned comedian. Yeah, I mean, like, I thought I you know, yeah, well, standard fact steer, pattern, <laughs> steer back career wise. Nope, it's a fair question, fellas. Um so she describes herself on her website as the alpha bitch. She is 100% that alpha bitch. She has a ton of merch with that phrase on it. I even went to her website and checked out a couple of her clips to see if I like recognized her from anything. And while I didn't recognize her, she 
She has a shtick. She wears like a leather jacket. She sounds She's like a very future aggressive. trademark litigant. Yeah, one um, of those. Yeah, one of those schlocky way. lawyers that you She's hear gonna, about. Like, sue you for calling something alpha bitch. Yeah. So she kind of alpha bitch you read about. You know what I'm saying? She does have a law degree from Tulane University, and she's passed the Florida bar, so she's an actual attorney. Had her own firm for a little while until she turned into this comedy realm. And she comes from a moneyed family, which is mm. probably why you have the option to decide you want to do comedy. Right. Her family owns the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and also Manchester United. So yeah, the Glazers. No slacks there. Yeah. That guy's got like a crazy beard. Uh, the uh, oh, patriarch really? of the gla- anyway. Sorry, I that did doesn't not matter. Know that. Uh, we're getting way off topic. Yeah. Um, all right. So what she's, is she stole some knives? What else did she do? Yeah. What yeah, is the nature of this conduct? Um, Allegedly. So it's really, Alleged. The the complaint's really funny. It says that um, she lived up her to her quote seemingly rogue no f's given attitude by destroying all the stuff. And here's what it says she destroyed. No, wait, now, hang on. Sorry. Are you saying that that the complaint against yeah. her like co opted her yeah. like alpha bitch her persona? Yes. We're all we're yes, all corrupted. Great. Good. Everyone right. should read it. Nice. It's very funny. Right. Um, yeah. So she allegedly destroyed multiple cabinets and entertainment system, the front <laughs> gate to the entire property. Um, contaminated the property by letting her pets pee everywhere, uh, destroying furniture. She allegedly caused the home to become infested with insects and, and this is my favorite one, stole Pippin's Cuisinart knives and other utensils before she left. So they think the pet pissers did this? (laughs) I mean... (laughs) Sorry. Uh, The uh, Yeah, okay. Well, hang on. Wait, she the house got infested. I thought all houses in Florida were infested with insects. <laughs> oh, man. More regional mm. warfare. Uh, yep. Okay. Throwing it down from the northeast. What was the, uh, what'd you say? What, did you already say how much the property, like so, how much the damage was? Pippin says he had to pay over $110,000 to repair the property. So he's seeking that back and also leaving the door open to potential punitive damages, although that wasn't laid out explicitly in the complaint now i could keep us here for several minutes on like 90s bulls factoids but if i can construct a legal theory here it's entirely this is entirely speculative let's let's be clear uh sky pippen for a long time in like the chicago sort of service industry circles uh main uh earned a reputation for being a little tight with his money so much so they called him no tippin pippin <laughs> that's good <laughs> that's, that's that, that that's true uh, I'm thinking maybe he went to like a basket show. Of this woman doing stand-up comedy. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't tip out like he was supposed to. Sure, she was know. mad. My yeah. real question is that I just don't know if he could file a case like this without, without, like on his own, without Jordan. I, I like it. I think there's questions about his legal legacy. Um, I don't this know. Would be really man. interesting to see if he, you know, if he can do this lawsuit on his own. Look, he took a lot less money for a lot of years to be a part of a lawsuit like this. Right. And so, you know, I mean, I that's. I mean, I don't want to get into into counterfactuals and stuff. The point is the. Bulls are five and twenty. He's got other stuff to worry about. I hope we can 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 get off this tip for a while. We're starting to get into territory where I don't understand any of these jokes, guys. I mean, you brought so the story. I, I okay, did, sorry, but sorry, now sorry. I got to right. cut it off. All right. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And thanks, Alex. Thank you. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano, Stephen Trader, and Danielle Smith. Our guests this week, John Hill. And contributing reporters, Rachel Graff, Lauren Berg, and Dorothy Adkins. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. And if you want to know more about anything we've talked about, check out our website at law360.com podcast. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you like it, please leave us a review. Thanks, and join us again next week.